from digitiki.com. Perhaps Don the Beachcomber himself will help you solve the mystery of the elusive chopsticks and convince you it's the only way fine Polynesian morsels should be eaten. And later on, a Polynesian fire dance while you sit and watch beneath the stars. Welcome to the Quiet Village. And welcome back for another visit here at the Quiet Village. I am your host, Digitiki, coming to you direct from digitiki.com, broadcasting from deep within the heart of the Quiet Village. And I've got my Mai Tai. Got my Mai Tai. I hope you could hear that. And I'm ready for episode 99. That means 100. We're almost at 100. This is episode 99. And I'm very, very excited about this episode. It's very special. I have a very special guest, Tim Glasner, a.k.a. Swanky, who is the author of a book called The Maikai, History and Mystery of the Iconic Restaurant. And it is a beautiful, big uh, uh, coffee table book about the Maikai beautiful stories, beautiful uh, photographs that he's uncovered. He did a wonderful job. So we're going to talk about the Maikai and the history, as well as the current state of the Maikai, because as of right now, the Maikai is still closed, not because of COVID, even though that that would be a factor, but because the roof has caved in due to water damage over the kitchen, which I, I realize he has a little bit more detail on that and what's happening with that, plus his newest update on um, his his new project that's going to be coming out. He's going to announce it. It is a biography of Don the Beachcomber and quite an exhaustive biography. It sounds really interesting. So I'm really excited to have Tim on the show. But first, episode 100. It's coming up. It is coming up soon, soon, soon. So um, I, I never thought that I'd make it to 100. And I want to, from the bottom of my heart, thank all of you listeners because um, if no one was listening, I never would have done 100 episodes. Uh, that's just the fact. So thank you all. And thank you all for writing in from time to time. Give me music ideas and um, tell me how much you like the show and that sort of thing. And occasionally I've got some that tell me they don't like it. So that's all right. And it's quite all right. Uh, but 100 episodes, and, I, and I've really grappled with what to do for 100 episodes. I've got the 100th episode already figured out. In fact, it's already in editing. So that will be coming soon. So um, keep a lookout for that. But now, without further ado, let's get on to our guest, one of uh, uh, the guests that I'm very excited to have on. Tim Glasner, a.k.a. Swanky, the guy who literally wrote the book on the Maikai, uh, one of the founders of Hukilau in Fort Lauderdale. Actually, I think it started in uh, Atlanta, yeah. right? Yeah, in Atlanta. It started in Atlanta and moved to um, Florida, and he ha is here to talk about um, his latest venture, which is coming out soon. It is the work... Um, it is a work on the life of Don Beach, 
Ernest Gant, a.k.a. Don the Beachcomber. Uh, but first, we're going to get started on the book. And um, I want to talk to you about the book. Welcome. It's been a long time. I think the last time I saw you was several years back in in Florida. Oh, probably at the Mai Kai. Yeah. It's been, it's been years. I haven't... <laughs> In our bellies. <laughs> so, um, so I want to talk about the book. It's uh, the history and mystery of the iconic tiki restaurant, the Mai Kai, and it is a beautiful, beautiful book. And I have been going through my copy, and there's there's a lot in here. And what I really like is is all the little stories of how it got started. But um, talk to me about how you got introduced to the Mai Kai. I, you know, it, it it was just a place on our radar back in the, you know, 2000. I know, you know, when the Kahiki closed, you know, the, the early days of the Internet, what I knew about the Kahiki was what I could find on on the Internet. And I, I almost said Google, but back then I don't even think Google existed. I had a few pictures and I ended up not going to the Kiki closing just because I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll go to some other place. Like there is some other place like the Kiki and I, I managed to miss that. But uh, we had such a huge response to Hukilau in Atlanta. A huge number of people came from Florida and in particular Brielle and Tristan Ishtar uh, said, you know, you you need to do this at the Maikai. We did in 2003 went there and you know they just really embraced us and it was a fantastic experience and of course we stayed there we talked about going to disney and moving the event around but we stayed in fort lauderdale because you know the mai kai is uh, is unique in so many ways one of the main ones is that they can you can bring you know six or seven hundred people in there and, and they can seat you for dinner and serve you and it's like just an average day i mean they they serve 1,200 people a night there on a regular basis. So, you know, they they handled everything we threw at them in stride and were glad to have us. And and that began my interest in the Mai Kai, of course. I, you know, like a lot of people, it's, I started collecting stuff. But by way of Hukilau, I was friends with the family uh, and Mireille, the owner, and, and everybody there. And, and then people who've worked there for decades. And I started hearing stories. And in my head, I was, you know, just interested. And and over years, it got more interested, and and had this notion that I was going to put together a, a sort of a um, like a glossy magazine or something with a little history that they could sell in the gift shop, maybe you know, for ten bucks or something. And I had was collecting images and really just, you know, just wasn't was just a fan and started putting this together. And then when, uh, when Jack Thornton passed away and I, I realized, wow, like the man who founded the Mai Kai was right there in Fort Lauderdale. And I never reached out. I, I never met him. I, you know, this missed opportunity that really kind of kicked me in the gut. And I thought, you know, I got, I want to find the history while I can. So I, I started calling searching the internet for people that I names that I knew. And the first one was Leon Spico, who I thought was the first general manager from, you know, articles and girly magazines that I've read and called him up out of the blue and said, I was working on a book about the Mai Kai and can, can we talk? And he says, okay, I'll give you 30 minutes on whatever day. And 
So I called them back and we talked for half an hour and it was incredible and really just managed to set everything off because he he introduced me to Bob Van Dorf and told me that's the man I needed to talk to. But I just remember the, one of the last things he said to me, he says, so you're working on a book about the Mai Kai? And I said, yeah, yeah. He says, I don't think anybody's going to want to read that. <laughs> like, well, you know, it's, it's, we'll see. <laughs> but you hear that a lot. I mean, for some people, for people who, you know, it's just their job, you know, they don't, they don't have the distance from it to, to see it the way that I do or you do. Yeah. I had never heard the name Bob Bendorf when I talked to him. And it turned out Bob was the actual first general manager uh, that, that Leon's had come along a year later. But it, he gave me Bob's phone number and I reached out to Bob. He left a message on, on the machine and just, you know, it was just something. Mm-hmm. Uh, he called me back and, and his his stories that he started telling me were just fantastic because he had been there in the beginning. He was working at Don the Beachcomber Chicago for a long time before and, and that the Thorntons had recruited him and then he'd recruited all the staff in Chicago and he was, you know, the cornerstone to the Maikai happening. And, you know, he was telling me the stories about, you know, Lynn Lark, Lynn Lee, Lynn Art Lee, Kenny Lee, the head, head chef at the Maikai and, and, you know, all these stories that went into the book and, and introduced me to other people who I needed to look up. And, but then after I, I've been talking to him for forever, I don't know, he would call me out of blue and I would just drop everything and talk to him for an hour. And then I said, you know, you worked at Don the Beachcombers. Did you ever meet Don the Beachcomber? And he said, meet him. Well, he was my best friend. <laughs> wow. What? <laughs> he says, yeah, we were, we were, we're like soul brothers. I mean, we're, he was, he's my best friend. I mean, I, I arranged his funeral. We were, I was at his bedside when he, when he died. We were best friends. And that really is what changed everything for me. Because now it's not just a story about the Mai Kai, but it's an inside story about Don the Beachcombers and the man himself. And, and uh, you know, the had the, the stories of the person who knew him really well and, and that branched off into a lot of other things but so that it you know that first call when I, I called Leon Spico I mean I was lying to him I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't I was going to write a book but you can't call somebody and say hey I'm just a real t- tiki nerd will you talk to me for half an hour about what you used to do you know that, that doesn't work so but it turned out that I did I mean I, I collected all this information all these stories all these people and i really had the notion that i would turn it over to jeff barry or somebody and they would write the book and but then one day i was i, I was kind of freaking out i didn't know why i was I had this it's like okay i've got to clear my mind and i went and started meditating and almost immediately it just came into my head this is you've got to write the book it, it's you have to do it called the voice of God or whatever it was just like the light came on and I immediately had peace and that lifted the burden from me whatever that was and from then on it was like yeah these people have trusted me with their stories I've got to tell their stories and that's when I really sat down and started working on it in earnest well the book is really fascinating to read I I, you know um, you open with the chapter on 
Don the Beachcomber. And uh, I'm reading it and I'm thinking, well, this is fascinating, but it's a book about the Maikai. And then as I went on, I realized that Don Beach had a lot to do with the Maikai roundabout, directly, indirectly. It's really fascinating how, um, how much he, he, I don't know if you'd say influenced or what, but he had a lot to do with the Maikai. You know, what I say is if, if you want to go back in time to Don the Beachcombers, then go to the Maikai. They patterned themselves after Don the Beachcombers, and they, you know, they, they, they ripped them off. I mean, that's, that's a very poor way of saying it. They hired away the number two chef, the number two bartender. They had the purchasing agent in Bob Van Dorf, who, when they came in, he was able to get them the plum sauce and bamboo shoots and the secret ingredients for Mariano Liquidini and all the rums and the shaved ice machine and everything, even the glassware, all 56 different pieces of glassware, everything that they were used to at Don the Beachcombers there at the Maikai. And then they asked them, you know, they didn't want to be a direct ripoff, so they asked Mariano, can you tweak every recipe? We're going to want to change the name slightly and we want to change every recipe. We don't want to be exact copies. And he did that. So, it, but it's very close. I mean, if you had a zombie at the Maikai, you would absolutely know it was a, a zombie like you had at Don the Beachcombers. But he added his own touches and his own drinks. But they had all of the staff. I mean, it wasn't just the head people. They had a whole staff of waiters and bartenders and chefs who came with them. And they, so they, they set up shop and they create, recreated what they did. And then they went about doing things like getting the holiday magazine, the holiday awards, which were a big deal for Don the Beachcombers, and the Maikai went and did that at, you know, 10 years straight. <laughs> Don the Beachcombers have been the number one seller of rum in the United States for years and years. Now Maikai comes along, and they're the number one seller of rum in the United States for years and years and years. And they they, they kind of eclipsed Don the Beachcombers. And, you know, and, and they did things that Don never did, like building, well, Don on the mainland. They built this building from scratch, you know, that was purposely built and designed to be this space age, mid-century, modern tiki establishment that was designed to be that and and to be this, you know, escapist tropical wonderland. You know, Don Don Beachcombers was inhabiting hotel rooms and hotel restaurants and things like that. You know, of course, in Waikiki, that's different than what Don did himself. But, yeah. You know, we're talking about the corporation and Sunny and all that. But this is really unique. And now today that, you know, the Maikai is still doing a lot of things that nobody else does that are exactly from Don the Beachcombers. That even in this day of, of craft cocktails and so many people doing tiki cocktails, and there's so many tiki bars, but there's still things that are at the Maikai that, Nobody else does, like the flaming coffee grog. I don't think anybody else does that flaming grog. And it's a fantastic drink. It's one of my favorites. But it's that table-side presentation, that flair, you know, fire. And it's a great drink. And that is exactly something from Don the Beachcombers that's only at the Maikai. You know, it's like every time I go, I try to get that drink. And it's, you know, it's like a time capsule. 
it's interesting, and and I want I don't want to give it all the way because I want people to read the book. I want people to get this book and check it out. There's a reason that they were able to get all those people to jump ship uh, because. Right up front, you talked about how everyone really admired Don and they respected him because he treated everybody right. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of political stuff going on and uh, there was a reason they were able to actually siphon those people off to the Maikai. So um, that's really interesting. And, and what, what you said and what you wrote in the book, I did not know until... Um, I was reading the book and I realized that what you just said was that the Maikai, there are no more Don the Beachcombers. I mean, there's one in, there's one in Hawaii, I believe. And I, and I've never been there, so I don't know how faithful well, it is. It has the name, but it's about it. <laughs> I mean, Don the Beachcombers closed in 1989. I mean, yep. whatever name place there is, that, that's it, you know. Yeah, so it, going to the Maikai is in essence going to a Don the Beachcomber to a certain degree. Um, but the building you were talking about now, the building is amazing. Now, I, I always say this every time I mention the Maikai in, in my show, is if you haven't been there, you don't know. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I got to say that when I first went... Um, it was one of those things where everyone was talking about it. And I thought, you know, it's one of those things where you always think, well, it can't live up to the hype. Nothing can live up to the hype. And then you get there and it's way beyond the hype. <laughs> Literally yeah. when those doors close, you're in another world. That's one of the things I, I say is you cannot oversell the Maikai. It will always meet your expectations. And I don't have to fear that I'm overselling it when people get there, you know, but, and, and, you know, it's funny. People will say things like, you know, this isn't as good as, as the Maikai and, or, or whatever. And I said, you know, the Maikai itself is a secret ingredient. Like whatever the cocktail is, it gets better. If you're sitting at the Molokai bar and you can hear the drums of the show in the other room and, you know, that whole experience makes everything a little better most of the time you take somebody there they're just flabbergasted and, and it's an experience that you, you can't you can't oversell them you can't make them ready for it one of the things that um is fascinating and i i kind of half knew it but i wasn't really sure about it was from the pictures but your your book explained um part of the Maikai's roof was open to the elements when it first opened, right? It was almost like dining outside. Yeah, and in, in the days, in the 50s, the, you know, Florida was seasonal, and the Maikai was only open in winter, you know, so so fall, winter, spring, and then they would be closed for the summer because it was too hot, and people, they talk about snowbirds, that's all there was, you know, yeah. They, they would close down for, for part of the year, so which makes it even more amazing that they managed to, to make a million dollars in the first year when they were all, they opened late December and they were only open until spring. So, but yeah, so, so the way the Maikai, the Maikai was designed to, to embrace the environment and to be open air and they had living plants and what the area behind the stage now or that, that area from the, in front of the stage and all the way back was called garden at the time. 
because at that time it really was a garden. They had live palm trees and live plants, and they had a greenhouse in the back of the, of the lot. And so these palm trees would spend a week in the maikai, and then they would wheel them out to the, to the greenhouse, and they had four sets. So one set would come out and go back into the maikai, and then they would rotate them out so they would get nice and healthy in the greenhouse and then spend a week in the maikai not having as much light as they expect or whatever. But it's just over-the-top environment. And when it would rain, they would have to move people because it would rain on people. Yeah. And and they oriented it. If you, I mean, something you probably haven't thought about is the maikai is oriented east to west, and it's and it's faces uh, the east because it, in the evenings when they they only serve dinner and they always have only been open for dinner. So by dinner time, the sun is setting or going to the west side which is the enclosed part of the building. So the interior of the building is in shade. Uh, you know, it may heat up during the day, but in the evenings, there's no direct sun in there. So then they had big punka fans, which is an idea they took from Don the Beachcombers in Hawaii, and they're keeping a constant breeze in there because you had to wear a jacket. So you can imagine, yeah. you know, and the Maikai wasn't completely enclosed until the 80s when the, uh, the Reagan administration gave them a, a tax break for if you put the money back into your business, then, then that that allowed them to spend the money to enclose everything and, and glass it in and get air conditioning. Wow, that's fascinating. And there was also what, what I didn't realize there was a stream in there. Yeah, the the Maka has an amazing amount of water features, but the, the there was a, a big waterfall and pond out front and then a stream that ran along the sidewalk as you came in and then into the maikai and then through through the maikai and into the dining room and through the dining room and then down into that garden area and then it went was pumped back out so again when you're behind the stage there's there's stairs that go up to the stage and there's still this rock formation from where the water used to come through there and there's still water back there but that hole was this whole system of water that ran through the maikai so you had this inside outside one being one thing you know this this uh really embracing environment but and you know they also had the air conditioning i mean the the dining rooms either side of the of the center had four to seven glass panels that they could slide open and close and they, those were were air conditioned but the main room uh was was open to the sky and you know if i were if i were super wealthy and could just blow the money i would i would build my kai 1956 again and start out with the molokai bar added from the start but do it so that you know it can be serviced out of the main kitchen but keep that same design and, and, and I'd love to go back and see what that was like then and, and that era oh. yeah I can, I can only imagine what that would be like to have that big living jungle in there with, with, with a stream running through it and everything that's fascinating yeah the first time I was there I, I took a picture of the seating capacity plaque that's up on the up on the roof one of the beams because I couldn't believe the number it was like 670 max capacity or so. it was just enormous 
But it doesn't feel like that when you're in there. It feels like you're in little intimate dining rooms and um, spaces that are really cool, except for the big hall, which which is still cool. I mean, it's it's not. Yeah, I mean, you know, for the dinner show, they see two fifty to three hundred, for and they do you know one, two, three shows a night, depending on demand. But then they have all this other seating. There's even seat. There are even tables out in the gardens that most people don't know about that you can you can actually sit and be served out there. There's a couple hidden tables that they can set out for you. Yeah. You know, it's really kind of too big. You know, in 1971, when they when they renovated and, and then uh, Bob Thornton made it much bigger. There were a lot of great things he did, but it, you know, they were they were riding high in 1971. I mean, the 60s, the economy was greater than anyone can remember. I mean, like the people I talked to who were to say, you know, it, and these are people who are. are wealthy today and are still you know in in business but they said you know nothing compares that like so they 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 overbuilt at the time and and you know they suffered a little bit i mean i think i know if they wanted if they could get their wish they'd go back in time and not do as much they don't really need that much my but you know they're talking about uh bob bob thornton had a gumball machine in in his house and these guys, he said they would, they would bet hundred dollar bills on which color gumball would come out of the machine. <laughs> wow! You know, this is you know a hundred dollar bill in nineteen sixty six. So they just money was was, was to be burnt. It was, it was ridiculous. That is absolutely fascinating. I mean, um, yeah, that's and, crazy. You know, one of, the, one of the stories that isn't in the book was one of the guys, Randy Avon, who was who is in the book. He was telling me about uh, Leon Spico opened up a restaurant in 1967 called The Down Under, which. Uh, and Randy was a regular there, and he was telling me this story about some friends of his who were there. And he says, you know, these guys, you know, I was going there pretty regularly. I was spending, I don't know, 125, 100,000, 150,000 a year, but these guys are spending big money at the restaurant. $200,000, a year. So when they left, and I'm sitting there thinking, 1960s money. This guy's spending 150 to 250 thousand dollars a year in a restaurant, and that's 60s money. That yeah, that's a lot of money. Over and over again, I heard stories like that that you just like I I can't imagine the world these people live in or <laughs> lived in where you know they uh, the stories of people like coming in and trying to. Uh, impressed the the Molokai girls and this this guy came in and he had this little toy Cadillac and he gave it to his his favorite waitress and she said oh that's cute and he says and then he he throws the keys on the on the bar says well there's the real size one outside for you (laughs) you know this is the era of the Cadillac being the you know the top of the line car you could get so wow different world that's that's crazy. The, the the other thing too was that the Maikai was actually I, I don't know, you can 
tell me if it was was or wasn't if it was planned right from the get-go or if it was later after they opened but they had planned much more additions to it there was a, a new york style nightclub or vegas style nightclub i think hotel rooms well you know the this goes back to that whole uh, you know living large you know like a jack thornton had a live-in french chef in his house and, holy cow and you know the they were, you know, I don't know if you've heard of George Nakashima, who was an architect designer who did many, many Polynesian restaurants. Not the George Nakashima, who's artist, uh, furniture builder, but George was a, a, a architect. And uh, I, I talked to him before he passed away. It was unfortunate. You know, he was supposed to be at Hukilau when he had an accident, fell hit his head, and died just oh. before that. And there's another one that was like, Okay, I talked to him, and then I said, hey, come to Hukilau. And he's like, I will. And I thought, okay, well, I'll talk to him a bunch when he gets here. Yeah. Never talked to him again. Oh, that's awful. This man who is very much in demand and a professional architect, the Thorntons just hired him and said, we want you to come down here and live in Fort Lauderdale for a while so we can work on some ideas with you. And he's like, "I'm, I'm turning away jobs because they paid me a lot of money to just take whatever ideas they had and, and draw them up. And, and, and I've seen barrels, like 55-gallon drums, full of uh, blueprints and designs of just all the things that they imagined. And George Nakashima just drawing them up, you know, from places they were going to open in New York or, or California or whatever, but just ideas that, that they had for the Maikai. Uh, you know, and, it, and at that time, in the late 60s, it was Jack and Bob had their own differing ideas. And, and Jack was really into French cuisine and French wines. And the, the Maikai had this very elaborate wine list at, at the time and, and a huge wine cellar of his own. And he wanted to do a, like a Japanese tea room in the back and a coffee house in the back in a, in a hotel, like a two-story lodge in the back. And, and, and he had his own design, but Bob really wanted just, he says, you know, we've made a lot of money on, on Polynesia. Let's just stay with that idea. And, and they kind of were loggerheads, but they, those designs got drawn up and, and anything that they can imagine, they had an architect on, on staff just to, to, do whatever they thought. So was it George Nakashima or, or was there a a different artist who did some of those wonderful paintings of the the renderings? Well, the paintings were by Al Kokab. He was brought in with, uh, he was, he was friends with Leon Spico and they were close and he did a great deal of, of the design work. Sort of all the furniture is designed by Alcoke have all those table lamps and lamps throughout the place. He was the artist of the Maikai, you know, for everything from commercial ads to calendars, everything he did. And then he left with with Leonce to partner at the the Down Under and all the other things that they did. They they had restaurants in San Francisco and, and all over the Michelin star ratings and uh, but they were he was uh, from the Art Institute of Chicago, just like Bob Van Dorp and Dave Stevens, who was a designer. Who, uh, Dave Stevens was doing things like 
reproducing the turtle shells. Mm. And they had one real turtle shell, and they gave it to Dave Stevens, and they said, we can't get these anymore, it's illegal. Make us more of them, and he made like five more. And then brought them into the Maikai and said, "Here's here are my reproductions and the real one. Pick out which one's real, and, and they couldn't tell one from the other. Fantastic. Well, you know, I... I've been to the back, uh, into the office of the Maikai, where they have one of those giant, wide uh, renderings of the whole front of the Maikai, and it's just gorgeous, but there's different versions, right? Some of them show the little two-story thing in the back, and... Yeah, it's a, it's a postcard that I used to call the Maikai that never was, because yeah. it made a postcard of one of those drawings by Al Kokab of one of Jack... Thornton's ideas of what he wanted the Maikai to become, and this was in the late 60s before it happened. I don't know why they decided to, to make this into a postcard, but it, it shows the two-story building and the Japanese tea room and all the stuff that they never actually built. And then a few years ago, they reproduced it, and they started, if you go to the Maikai today, the, the postcard, they've got another one of those big long postcards, and it's that image it's the maikai that never was it is it's beautiful though I, I i've always held out this hope that one day they would put out big you know prints frameable prints of those because they are just any of the renderings even just the ones of the back with the you know with the yeah. people standing out there on the torches they're just beautiful paintings artwork um, is beautiful I and mean, they did some books together he and leon's uh, like uh Best restaurants in Florida, best restaurants of Puerto Rico, San Francisco, and he did all that artwork, and it's all just beautiful. Now, you mentioned something, too, that I want to go back to. Um, it was, gosh, it's years. It might have even been almost 10 years now that one of the Maikais where um, the, the little Sunday get-together at the Maikai in the afternoon, they had blueprints for the Maikai and the old sign and things. They pulled out stuff. That was... Th that was the afternoon that my mind was blown when I saw the blueprints for Maikai New York. And I believe it was Mike Skinner was talking about it. And I just happened to stand right next to him and, and ca catch him talking about it. They had, they actually had the address planned. They had mm -hmm. the layout. It was fantastic. And then there was also talk of a Maikai Paris, I believe. They they dream big, yeah. but the, you know I, I don't know why they never expanded or, or did any of those things. Like you know they they weren't around to ask, and there weren't the people there who who were insiders to answer those questions. You know, you know and, and the one thing I, the thing that's very different about my book is that I it's not a it's not the history that I think most people are expecting. It's not like a history book where. You know, August 14th of 1957, yeah. blah, 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 happened. It, everything that's in my book is attached to a person. Yeah. It's someone that I interviewed and talked to, and they gave me the firsthand story or the secondhand story or something that they were there. And it's the history as told by these people. You know, it's sort of like if you sat down at the bar next to Ann Campbell who was, you know, Mr. Girl from 63 to 67, and you talk to her for an hour and a half, and you start hearing, A, the stories of, you know, her being there with the Yankees, and, and I forget who it was, you know, Tommy Lasorda or whoever. She was his favorite, and if he walked into the, 
the Mai Kai and, and he couldn't get his seat in her section. He would just leave, you know. <laughs> but but then she started telling you about her, her 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 other stories about when she was working on a top secret mission for the for the Navy to train dolphins to to deliver bombs and find bombs and you know it's it's, it's more than just the history of the Mai Kai. It's the history of it's the story of the era and it's it's firsthand stories that were very interesting to me. It's not a a complete and total history of you know, day one to day whatever. It's it's kind of it's cherry picked and it and like I said everything there's a lot of there are a lot of quotes in the book because there are those people that I actually talked to who were there who told me what was said or told me what they said and, and it's that first hand information also about Gone the Beach Hunt, you know. That's what makes it fascinating to me. I mean, yeah, you you could definitely do a date by date um, book like that, but it, it's it's the personal stories. That's what that's what makes it. That's fa- that's what's fascinating to read. The the uh, the chef um, uh, was it uh, Lee John John Kenny Lee yeah. Kenny Lee. That was it. Um, his story. He was a World War Two hero, captured a German submarine. It, it's just that kind of stuff is just fascinating. It really. It wasn't planned as I, as I started out, but it, it ended up that I was, you know, kind of proud of that there are so many women's stories in there and there are stories like Kenny Lee that, you know, this the story of, of the head chef, not, you know, there actually is not a whole lot about Bob and Jack Thornton who are kind of, you would think would be the main characters, but I feel like, you know, their story's been told and then their, their story is told in there, but, you know, have they don't have a chapter on Bob Thornton or Jack Thornton. They're, they're part of the story, mm-hmm. but stories about the women and, and, and the sort of minor characters, you know, the Filipino bartender and the, the Chinese head chef and, and, you know, the characters you wouldn't necessarily expect. And it wasn't, wasn't any intention. It was just, these are the stories that I found that were interesting. And these people had great stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you did a fantastic job on this. It's really, really interesting and wonderful pictures. I mean, you you found some fantastic pictures in there, too. Well, it, it, it's, the Makai is so well documented, and there are, there are piles of scrapbooks, and their scrapbooks from the Makai are something like, I would say they're about three feet by two and a half feet, they're gigantic books, <laughs> and uh, there must be fifteen or twenty or more of them. And then they're just photo albums, and you know it's so documented that it made it easier. There's so many images, and it you know it kind of was great. And then you know my publisher was fantastic. I I told them what I wanted. I wanted it you know to be a large format, full color. And, and I gave it to them and they came back with this design and I was, you know, so nervous. And I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, wow, they, they, they've done something really fantastic. And they put it, I, there's very little that I changed. Yeah. Anyway, like, other than this image, they left out this image and used this one and I, you know, switched a few out. But the, the layout was done fantastically. And it's, a, it's what I wanted, you know, this full color kind of, not, I don't know, Sort of coffee table kind of book. Yeah, it's as good to look at as it is to read. Well, my 
my kids are are six and nine, and because I'm so into tiki, they they're fascinated by it, and they they've been to a few places. And uh, I was reading the book, and they were looking over my shoulder, and every time I turned the page, like, "Whoa, look at that! Whoa!" And I said, "That's a real place, and I've been there." You have. <laughs> they were so excited. I hope to take them one of these days, which. Brings me to the next thing, and we got to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the current state of the Maikai. There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of conjecture, a lot of rumor, a lot of guessing about what's happening. Um, thank goodness the the Maikai themselves have been putting out information about how they're doing. But do you have any any more on where they're at, how they're doing? The thing that you that and first of all, what happened was just terrible things that happen at a terrible time on top of terrible things that happen yeah. on a terrible time. I mean, you know, they're already, they're, it's, it's the pandemic and they're struggling and they've had to, you know, close or, or, or be half open. And, and then, you know, they get this pipe that bursts in the kitchen and they get that cleaned up and think they think things are fine. But that, that, that pipe, you know, weakened the ceiling in the kitchen and then they're all done. They go home after a long evening, you know, middle of the night, they, they're coming in to clean up this water from this sprinkler system. And then they get that done, you know, 7 a.m. They finally go home, okay. And then they get this record rainfall in Fort Lauderdale that destroys the roof and washes out the support to the building. And now, everything in the kitchen is ruined and the structure itself of the kitchen is, is unsafe and so they have to, they're going to have to bulldoze the, the building to to make it safe to put back now the city says because it is such a there's you know there are rules and regulations in any city but you know they're grandfathered in up to this point but they were it's such a large portion of the square footage of the entire building that for them to tear it down and rebuild, they have to bring the entire building up to codes for today. Mm. Means, oh boy! You know, so let's say it's a million-dollar rebuild of the kitchen, and they think, okay, we can do that. We'll figure it out. Well, now it's three million dollars bringing up the entire building up to codes, and mm. maybe it can't even be brought up to codes. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, well, you know. We're going to have to dismantle it. It's cheaper for us to dismantle the Maikai, put everything in storage, raise the entire building, and build it back, you know, on the same footprint, mm-hmm. and but build it back to code than it would be to try to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so they're in this giant hole, you know, and now the staff's all gone their separate ways, and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're trying to figure out how to do this, and insurance isn't going to cover all of this, even... Even the part that that they started with, with the kitchen, it was going to be lacking. But now with the whole thing, it's just this this terrible bunch of things that have come together. Oh and, my goodness! I had no idea it was that bad. I I I just thought it was a. I just pictured a giant hole in the roof, and it was just a lot to to fix. But yeah. it's much more than that. That's, yeah, that's the main building is, is fine. It's untouched, but the kitchen is is complete 
complete loss and, and everything has to be destroyed, rebuilt, and, and then refurnished. Mm. And, you know, the thing that people have to understand is that not, the Maikai has been sitting on a piece of property that's worth millions of dollars mm-hmm. for a long, long time. And at any point in the last two decades or more, they could have said, yeah, we're tired of running a restaurant with over 200 employees that makes money or doesn't make money and we have to be on top of it and we have to, you know, clean, you know, the worry about the toilets backing up and the employee who doesn't show up today and, you know, this is it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just sell it for $3 million and walk away. I mean, that, that's that been a part of existence for my guy, but they, they care more about the legacy of what they've been doing for the last 60 years than that. And they want to keep doing it because it is, you know, Bob Thornton's legacy and the, the family legacy. And it's still owned by Ray Thornton and, and the family. And it's still run. You know, the family is still in there. Uh, people in the, in the stage are still family members and they care. And they've been, you know, doing this, difficult, difficult thing. Any restaurant is, is hard. Yeah. A restaurant the yeah. size of the Maikai is much harder. And to, to keep this place going, it, it, it's always a miracle that, that it's, it stayed. This is even harder. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if if anything was going to make them say, all right, you know, Marie's, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm going to say exactly how old she is, but she's, you know, 70, 80, something in there. Sell, sell the place, move on with your life. Let's, let's just give it the yeah. up, you know. They haven't done that. And I think that alone says something about well, the, what's behind the, this whole thing, that, that they didn't just say, well, we're screwed, you know. Why are we even fooling with this? Mm-hmm. Bulldoze it, sell it, put in some apartments. We'll walk away with, you know, six, eight million dollars in our pockets and the grandkids will inherit that money and we'll have to deal with this. So the fact that that that's not happened and by any, you know, not that they would tell me if, if it was going to happen, but that it, I haven't heard anything like that, you know, yeah, uh, is the most promising thing. And, you know, I've told you some of these stories about the wealthy people who have been in and around the Maikai and look, they still have, you know, friends and, and associates and fans who are, have the kind of wealth that you and I can't imagine. Yeah that they can lean on, you know, not that people are just going to give away millions of dollars to the Maikai, but the people who have the resources to maybe do that. And, and in some ways we're a little lucky, I guess, because, uh, you know, people who have had money a year ago, a lot of those people have twice as much money today. And I don't know about you, but when things went terrible way back, I, I had like, I was like, okay, I'm going to get, spend like 500 bucks on some stocks because there were things in the toilet. And today that 500 bucks is a thousand dollars just yeah. because, you know, everything came back. That was terrible. And, and the people who had millions of dollars to say, well, let's just buy some stocks now have twice as much money. Right. So I think a lot more people have disposable money, money that they can, they can say, well, you know, I, I just doubled my portfolio and I have an extra hundred million that I'm just, 
investing in, I'm going to take, you know, 6 million and invest it in the Maikai because I love the place. You know, mm-hmm. that, I'd like to think that sort of thing is happening. Maikai is, has the kind of connections and, and uh, strength to be able to, to make that happen. And hopefully it will, um, you know, that, and, I, and, you know, I, it's kind of a, a joke about the Hukilau, the, the final Hukilau, um, the second final Hukilau, the third final Hukilau. But, the, <laughs> but what maybe people don't know is that um, a number of years ago, we were kind of in a similar situation. The Maikai was up for sale. And um, it was when when we we were doing Hukilau and, and they said to, to me, um, sat Hukilau Friday, Saturday, and then we're locking the doors, and the Maikai will be gone on Sunday. Wow, that was going to be the end, and we couldn't tell anybody. Now, you know, we were the, the few people in the inner circle even knew, and that was devastating. But you know, so we announced that it was the final Hukilau, right? Because as far as we knew, it was, but then was saved and they didn't sell it and you know the family kept it and stayed open obviously and, and we moved on so i've been through this in a way because I, you know there was a, a you know i'm getting ready to host you know, 500 to 1500 people with the maikai mm-hmm. and it's going to be the last that we any of us experienced the maikai you know i i said my goodbyes and was ready to be you know devastated then so I, uh, you know, and and the family has been there too. You know, I mean, I'm just a fan. I'm just this guy doing an event and, and loves the Maikai, but they were ready to sell the Maikai and be and see it in too. And so they've been through this too, but they've also been through bringing it back and, and running it. So I really want to hope and believe that the, if there's a way that they'll find it, and then I'm I'm hoping that you know if. If anybody out there wants to do something for the Maikai, A, only do something if they say, you know, this people want to do GoFundMe's or whatever. Just let, if the Maikai wants that, then do that when they say it. But what you really need to do, whatever your belief is, is keep the family in your prayers. You know? Agreed. Agreed. I, I, uh, it's uh you know you know part of it is it's such a loved place and it's from that bygone era not just of tiki but when dining was entertainment just going to the restaurants and the restaurants used to really do a lot to entertain you in terms of atmosphere and and the dishes and then we you know we went through the the 80s and you know the the end of the 70s where everything became really bland and you know, Chinese restaurants used to look like a, a palace, you know, an, an oriental palace. And then they went into that bland kind of pink and black yeah. lacquer. And <laughs> the, well, the supper club in itself is something that doesn't much exist anymore. And the Maikai has done that. The, you know, the, it, that seeing that show, it, it, it always almost brings a tear to my eye when I'm there. It's just magical. I'll often just wander in just to watch the show just because seeing it right there on that dark room with 
the fire and the, and the band, you know, that Tahitian drums. It's, it's just magical. And there's just, you know, it's more than, a, than the Polynesian show. You know, like the things that they have, there's there are giant fans up in the top of the Maikai that when they're doing the fire knife answer, that come on to suck all that smoke out. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't think about these things, but they're giant exhaust fans to get all that smoke out of the room. And they have the ability to throw that fire knife you know, 30 feet in the air and, and indoors. And, you know, that, there aren't very many places even remotely like it. Mm-hmm. Certainly not. Yeah, it is absolutely. Uh, it, it's it's unbelievable, and I and I always say it. Those who are listening, if you haven't been, um, assuming it's still there, you have to go. It's beyond belief. It really is, and I mean, it's kind of like the Disneyland of tiki restaurants. So the book is the Maikai. History and Mystery of the Iconic Tiki Restaurants by Tim Glasner. It's on um, Schiffer is the publisher. It is a wonderful book. I suggest you get it. You can get it. Um, you can find it on Amazon and directly from your website as well. Yeah, MaikaiHistory.com. Right now, I, you can get it from me signed actually cheaper than Amazon. So, Do it. Do it, do it, do it. It is a really wonderful book. So, but that's not all, folks. We've got more. I, I want to talk about your newest venture now, which, which I just found out after um, contacting you um, about coming on the show. So, well, you know, I think all of us are to some level fans of Donna Beachcomber. And, and you know, Bob Van Dorp sort of opened me up, and, and I really feel like, the Maikai book is my first book about Don the Beachcomber. Mm-hmm. And Bob Van Dorp told me that he had been working on a biography of Don. And um, I, I was doing research about Don as I was doing the Maikai book because the, the two kind of go together. Uh, but a book, biography of Don the Beachcomber is a huge thing because He's a huge character and anything that if, if you do it, you better do it right because a lot of people are going to be very critical and, and it's going to be seen by a lot of people and you're going to, and, and it's, it's infinitely more difficult than the Maikai book for the simple reason that Don's not here and most of the people who know, even the people that, are, that knew Don only knew him maybe in the 70s. Uh, the history is is too far back, you know, and that it, it, he, you know, he exaggerated. I mean, that, that's <laughs> just, the best way to say it is he exaggerated about his own life. So I started working towards uh, a book and and started finding his family and and people connected with Don. And I I sort of laid a few things out. I said. I, the only way I can do this is to have three things. One is I need Sonny's son's story. Mm-hmm. I need to know that side of the story because, you know, she's she's the uh, the villain. And I, I don't want to paint her as a villain if she's not the villain. I right. want to get her a fair shake. And I wanted to get everything that Bob Van Dorp had. I mean, he was Don's best friend. And I, I did that. I found uh, Sonny's son's family. I, I did that. And... But, you know, Phoebe Beach 
was Don's wife when he passed away and she inherited everything from him. And her next husband, Arnold Bittner, did a biography, I guess, in the mid-90s of Don as a, as a gift to, to Phoebe. I felt like the only way to really do a true book would be to have the material that he had to write that book. And so I spent a lot of time first trying to find Phoebe. Uh, and every, I ended up find, having to hire a private investigator yeah. in New Zealand to, to find her. And, and then we, we started talking. And it took years of talking for her to finally, you know, I think she, she came to, she, obviously she cared a lot about Don because she, she still had all of this stuff of his and she'd done these books and stuff, but she, she carried it from Hawaii to New Zealand and she still had it all. And she was, she finally agreed to let me have access to it, but she said it stays here with me. So I planned a two week trip to New Zealand uh, with all the equipment that I would need to go and digitize everything and come home. And, mm -hmm. and they said, you know, how much it is with, that's just our best guess. It'll take, it'll take you two weeks. Yeah. And I was going to spend two weeks, you know, flying to New Zealand and spend two weeks in a hotel room scanning documents. Mm -hmm. If I was lucky, I might go get lunch somewhere and see something in the way. And I, when she said, yes, my, my gut said, let's go right now. But she said, no, New Zealand is crazy. The only time you want to be here is in the winter because it's so crazy. There's so many people here. So winter there was summer here. So, June, I was going to go, and then COVID happened, Ugh. and it had to be canceled. And, you know, that it was kind of devastating, but at the same time, I was like, oh, you know, maybe there's some other way. So we talked about it. I said, well, you know, it was going to cost me at least five grand for air, airfare was over $3,000, mm -hmm. stay at a hotel and all that. Why don't we hire somebody there to do what I was going to do? It was New Zealand dollars, you know, a dollar here is a dollar and a half there. So I'm like, okay, I can take five grand and that's like eight grand there. Right? Surely I can pay somebody $8,000 to do this. And she's like, yeah, okay, we'll see if we can find somebody, you know, maybe they can find somebody, maybe they don't. But then she called me back and said, you know, I was, we were just working on our wills and with the executor showing them what goes where and to whom and I decided to just leave all this to you in my will what and wow it would make much more sense if I just send it to you now and so that you can have it and start work on this book they she packed all of Don's photos and papers and everything all the pieces of information into boxes and you know it costs about three grand, but now it's here in the United States. And I just, this last month, it arrived and started going through it. And it's just a mountain of information. And it's just wow. amazing stuff from his, you know, the legal documents for changing his name to his annulment to Sonny Son to hundreds and hundreds of images that have never been seen before and his own writings about his own life his terrible handwriting which <laughs> luckily I think Arnold Bittner transcribed it all but I'm really just getting started it's going to take six months to probably get through it all but 
it's here and it's it, it's a book in itself along with everything else I've been doing you know Tom Tom Duncan has been huge help in the research department he's been oh he's uh, amazing so all of these pieces have, have come together now and working on this, this book you know and so now I can say okay I have all if, if there was ever going to be all of the information together than I have I mean, mm-hmm. I know more about Don's life right now than probably anybody on earth. You know, I've talked to this person and this person. They have this stuff that nobody knows. And they have this stuff that nobody knows. And But I know all of it because I've talked to all of it. So I'm working on that. Now, that's not, it's going to be years. I mean, yeah. it's going to take a long time to pull this together. And I've got to, you know, and decide what goes in it you know how much attention do I pay up to cocktails you know I feel like it needs to have cocktails in there because that's probably why any of us know who he is to begin mm-hmm. with but I don't want it just to be a cocktail book but at the same time just as Phoebe is packing this stuff up to and we're working out the details she was contacted by a couple of guys Alex and Max of uh, Surf Monkey Films in California and they're wanting to do a documentary about Don. Mm-hmm. And so we started talking and, and, and talking about what they wanted to do. And I looked at a lot of things they'd already done. And, and so and I've signed on now to, as an associate producer and we're moving forward. We're in pre-production on, on this documentary. Of course, COVID's limiting us, but they've been doing uh, interviews already and getting ready to you know, do a fundraiser so that I can afford to do the traveling to go to Hawaii and some of the other places they need to to, yeah. to visit more people and do more interviews. But we're lucky, you know, the book and the documentary will come out about the same time and we'll just have this huge dawn fest sometime That's in the awesome. future. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I, I'm really excited for you. I mean, to, to have that kind of that history material that you've got to go through i'm i can only imagine what that must be like to just be going through photos and documents and find just new little tidbits about everything if anybody if you've ever done research then you've probably had the experience that i've had many times and 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 i just had it just happened again yesterday is you know uh Carla Beach, Don's second wife. I tried to get in touch with her. Sven, Sven Kirsten gave me her phone number years ago, and I called her up. He said, you know, she travels a lot, so leave a message, and she'll get back with you when she gets back in town. And, and so she called me back, and then I couldn't answer, and then I call her back, and I get another message. And this went on for years, and then she passed away, and I never got to talk to her. Mm. Like, damn it, you know. Just another thing. And then she had an estate sale and sold and, and everything went in this estate sale. I'm like, I didn't have time to get to California to go to that. And oh. It's like, oh my God, everything, what was there that I missed? Well, Sven, when he first talked to her in 1995, he took a tape recorder and he recorded the conversation and he had lost that tape until recently. And, and he digitized it recently and he, and he sent it to me and I listened to I was listening to it yesterday for the first time. And in that tape, she says, he, he'd asked her about a, docu- a book or a biography. And she said, yeah, you know, 
I'm, I'm working on a, a book myself, and Don and I were, you know, there have been many people who want to do a biography of Don. And, you know, we sat down, he and I, and we, we recorded our whole history on tapes. And the tapes are around here somewhere. All of that's here. I, we, we both sat down and told, wrote, told our whole life story on tape. And, yeah, those tapes are here somewhere. And I'm just like, oh, my God, you mm. know. And, and so many stories. I mean, that's just one little story of the things that are just gone. That, you know, somebody in a stay cell, there's a box of tapes that somebody may have gone home with. Or they didn't buy them at all in the trash. And, no. you know, I've got this stuff, but I want to see it go to a museum or a university collection so it can be preserved forever. Mm-hmm. But so glad that I have it. And now I'm going to digitize it and it's going to be there for anybody in the future who wants it. And it's saved, you know, that it could be lost, you know, any number of times in the last 30 years since Don passed away. But it's very lucky to. That Phoebe saved it, she cared about it, and she's now given it to me so that I can care about it and, and share it with everybody. And uh, you know, I'm, you know, I've got a new website for the book, don beachcom and I'm starting to share stuff that I know that is interesting as I find it, but I know isn't really going to make the book. Mm-hmm. But it's, and it's, is it two ends? D O N N dash beach.com. Okay. I'm going to go check that out right when we're done. That's fantastic. And um, also, I'm, I'll am i go ahead, if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and put links to that and to your um, to your uh, MyKai book website for uh, when this episode comes yeah, out. And the, and the documentary is thedonoftp.com. Very cool. Yes, I saw that trailer you sent me. It's very, it looks very fascinating. I I'm I'm excited. I'm really I'm really excited for you, um, especially that you got all that material. That yes, you know it is. It could have just been scattered to the wind, uh, thrown away or destroyed, or or you know even destroyed in you know a flood or something like that. And it wasn't. And that's but the tapes. Yeah, you know, I was talking about you know George Nakashima. I, you know, I talked to him once and then he was going to come to the hookie and he says, I've got, I've got blueprints here I'll bring with me and I'll show you this stuff from then. I was like, oh, great. And then, you know, he passed away. But then he gave some of that stuff to somebody to bring with them and they brought it. But it was hookie hurricane year. And I never even got to see that. They, they showed it to me and said, oh, I've got this stuff from George. He wanted you to see it. And I'm like, oh, great. I can't wait to see it. And then, you know, all that crap happened. And I, and I never even saw that stuff. It was right there in front of me. And there's hundreds of stories like that that are just terrible. But, you know, and Bunny Yeager, you know, I, I sat down and talked with her several times and was like, oh, yeah. And she says, yeah, I'd love to talk to you. And I, I, she gave me her phone number. I thought, no, I want to wait till I see her again. I'll see her next Tukula. I'll sit down and talk to her then. And then she passed away. Mm. And I never called her. And she was like, oh, I've got stacks of those from the Maikai. I'll set them aside for you. And I'm like, oh, that's oh, all good. Wow. <laughs> Some of those things are, they've got to still be out there somewhere, right? They're, you know, you still might. Yeah, you know, and that's, that's something I, I'm, I'm reaching out, you know, I say here, just like I have everywhere else. You know, this this project requires everybody. Yeah. And there's so many things that people have and and you know, I'm giving everything I have 
Sven's helping however he can. All of these folks are helping, and I know a lot of collectors, and I'm going to you know, tap them for, for their menus and postcards and things like that. But there, there are things out there that none of us know about that somebody has, and they're like, they got it off eBay 10 years ago yeah. or, or whatever. So I encourage anybody listening who has some piece of Don's history or of Don Beachcomber history that you think is, can help, you know, bring it on. We'll, we'll add it to the book and give you, you know, attribution along with everybody else who's donating. And they want to make it as complete and as finished as it possibly can. Yes. So you hear that, everybody. Get a, get a hold of Tim if you've got some rare Dawn Beach stuff. In just the last couple of days, I've been posting some pictures on a Facebook group, a Waikiki in the 50s Facebook group. And, and those folks are helping me ID people. But then this one lady says, oh, yeah, I used to dance at Dawn's. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to talk to this lady. And yeah. hopefully, you know, there'll, there'll be more stories and more people that will get connected and, you know, well, while they're here, while we can, I gotta gotta get it all together. You know? Right? Yeah. There's little bits and pieces here and there. I mean, uh, that uh, Cinerama South Seas movie has a scene in yeah. in Don the Beachcombers in Hawaii, and it's it's. Um, and, you know, it, it, and just before even announced it to anybody, just setting up the website, somebody already found the website and sent me stuff that I'd never seen before. Fantastic. Well, good. Keep it up. Keep it up. That's awesome. I cannot wait to see the final product, both the book and the, and the movie for this, Tim, it was great having you on the show. I'm, uh, I'm excited for you and hopefully I'll get to see you again face to face at the mic eye someday. As soon, you know, the, we were getting, we were going to do an event, a little mini event at the Maikai last spring when COVID made us cancel all that. So mm. as soon as it's feasible, we're going to be back. You know, it was probably before Hukiel happens. Yeah. We're going to get my friends together. We called it the Maikai Friends with Dan. And it was an opportunity to invite your friends, not Tiki people, but people who... Well, I'm sure you have friends that only know Tiki through you. Yes. <laughs> if you want them to understand why you're such an oddball about this, then let's bring them to the Maikai together. So yes. we'll, we'll get that together as soon as possible. Hopefully we can all get together and have a black magic and a mutiny and oh. off the grog and, and enjoy the show and, and toast together this wonderful place. Unfortunately, yes. it's not going to be soon with yeah. all the work that's going on, but Hopefully there will be announcements soon that, that that they've got this figured out and it's going to move forward and we can all get back there. Yes. Well, thank you once again for coming on the show. And anytime you want to come back and talk about your progress or when the, the stuff's about to hit, let me know. I'd love to have you back to talk more about this. There's so many little details that I actually find the little details to be the fascinating thing. Like you were saying, the little stories and and whatnot so thank you for coming on the show and best of luck aloha aloha